I think we, we should always revisit um, why we love the game. Uh, you get beat up in real life. Like you mentioned a great uh, thing uh, as to why prep is harder. Well, uh, when we had unlimited time in school, we have day jobs and families and uh, responsibilities and things, and that all uh, saps our energy. Um, if we constantly remind ourselves, feel gratitude of to what the game, why we play the game, why we enjoy the game, um, I think then the question would be, hey, John, why do you like RPGs so much and GMing so much? That's a great question. And I think everybody, especially if you're starting to feel burnout, like, why do I like this game? What are my core points of enjoyment? And then how can I get more of that again? And just remind yourself. I think that might be a good question uh, to always ask. Jay's gonna bring me back Plus one to attack. Oh, 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 I want to come back to the dice. Whoa, oh, 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 I think I need some good advice. I need a roleplay rescue. Oh, yeah. I need a roleplay rescue. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hello Rescuers, my name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our lost roleplaying hobby. Today I have another great conversation with a roleplaying games luminary on the topic which perhaps causes me the greatest challenge and trips me up constantly, prepping for the adventures we want to run. Before I unleash the interview, I want to say a big thank you up front to my guest John and note that you can find links to all of his stuff in the show notes. This is Season 11, Episode 25, Adventure Prep with John Four. John Four is the founder of RoleplayingTips.com, which began in 1999 as a GM tips newsletter. Throughout the years, John has published a GM advice column in Dragon Magazine and several books about how to improve your GMing and continues to write on the topic of running better games. John has teamed up with Jochen Linnemann to uh, create Campaign Logger, a tool designed to help GMs capture all the details that get made up during sessions for the length of your entire campaign. But John is, however, perhaps best known for the Five Room Dungeon, which has become a well-known tool for adventure design across the RPG community. So welcome to the show, John. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're well. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, it's been an interesting day so far, and this is uh, this will be an exciting addendum to it. Okay. Well, look, thanks for coming on to the show. I've really um, been looking forward to having a conversation. I think... Um, if there's one thing I definitely need as a GM, it's advice on how to be better. And, um, you know, over the years, definitely followed the um, role playing tips kind of newsletter and been involved in taking part in loads of different things that you've done over the years as well. So it'd be great to talk about all of that. But you know what? I'd like to start where I always start with an interview, which is what's the backstory? Um, how did you get into role playing games? Let's see. How do I tell this in a short period of time? Um, in grade five, so way back in the 1980s uh, or late 70s, the, um, the a student tricked the teacher into running the entire class a game of D&D on a Friday afternoon. And so uh, I don't know what he was thinking, but he wanted 30 players, I guess. And uh, within, I would say, half an hour, once he kind of brought out the books and started having, and we were supposed to do character generation. So, um, yeah, within half an hour, all the girls 
had moved their desks to one side of the room and were doing their own thing. Most of the guys had moved their desks to another side of the room and were doing their own thing. And then a core group of nerds who were interested in it were uh, doing the D&D thing. And so um, I was, uh, I didn't really understand what was going on at that time. This cool game, this um, guy who was an older boy, um, he had a, it was just a cool experience uh, and the weird dice and the character sheets and all of that. Um, so then that was it. And then of course it was a disaster and the teacher said, okay, yeah, we know we tried it and uh, let's move on. And um, I didn't know what that was. And so I made up my own in that summer because I wanted a similar experience and I didn't know it was called D&D and, and all that stuff and so um, I made a wrestling game uh, where it was uh, kind of what I recalled about you could attack with the dice and you could do damage with the dice and whatever so I just made my own thing anyways fast forward to Christmas my friend gets the D&D um, red book and a couple of modules for Christmas and he says, okay, here, you you read this and and we'll play. And then that's when I learned, oh, this is the game. I've got the books in my hands now. And then the, the rest is history. I was nominated as the DM. Perhaps if I was nominated as the player, it would have been different. Um, but yeah, I've been a forever DM since. And uh, yeah, my friend and I played um, countless hours. And I don't know, I don't remember what our record was, but we stayed up for about two days straight at one point, just playing the game nonstop. Um, that was our marathon sessions and uh, yeah, anyways, and by the end of that year, we had 50th level characters. Uh, we had every magic item in, in the advanced, uh, D and D, uh, DM, uh, guide. And we had, uh, these munchkin things, uh, and it was glorious. It was fantastic. And that's, that's basically how I got into the game. I kind of backed into it by not knowing what it was and then finding it or rediscovering it again through a friend. That's got to be the most interesting backstory ever. So was it? Yeah. You said it's the red box, was it? And that you? Uh, it was a red book. Uh, I I don't remember when the red box. That's eighty three. So, okay, great. Yeah. So this was uh, this would have been nineteen eighty. Uh, okay. Now that memory uh, stirs, and um, yeah, it was the basic uh, red covered D and D book, which I still have uh, somewhere on my shelf. That book, yeah, it's good. So we're talking about BX, basically. Yeah, it's great. And then of yes. course, it sounds like you went straight into advanced from there, and and so on through. When I first came across um, your stuff, it was, you know, uh, early 2000s. So that was third edition. And um, I know that you were. Look, there's a rumor, actually. I don't know if it's true. Is it true that you co uh, contributed to the Dungeon Master's Guide number two? Is that true? Or fourth edition. For, for fourth, fourth edition. edition. Aha, edition, okay. Maybe that shall be not named uh, <laughs> for some folks. But, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I got a, a writing contract um, mm. perform that. So I had a, I don't know what portion of the book. But, yeah, there's sections yeah. in there that, that are my uh, my fault. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. So you've been, obviously, you've been through D&D through all, you know, all those years. Um, and just, I know certainly you were involved big time in third and in fourth and now fifth, which is absolutely great. So what is it that you most, you most enjoy about role-playing games? What, why do you keep doing them? I think uh, as a, as the forever GM, uh, as a, as the, um, the willing uh, victim of that role, the um, it's, it's mentally challenging for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I try to describe it to people who don't understand the game, but in the business world, because they kind of, they understand uh, business and whatnot. And I say, well, it's a game of imagination, but also strategy. Mm. Uh, it's a game of, of leadership, but also uh, fun. It's a game of teamwork um, and tactics. Uh, and it, it, it just, I, don't, I cannot think of another game that attacks your brain in all the areas that it does. So board games are great, 
but the fences around a board game minimize your imagination except for imagining new tactics and strategies and moves um any like improvisational games lack the kind of the strategic component and uh math and other aspects and so on any kind of game that you can name uh i believe uh is deficient uh, from all the things that uh being a game master uh is in a, in a role playing game so um that means being a weirdo i am uh, cuz i kind of get bored easily um it's never ending interesting stuff uh, like I could just start create a brand new world right now if I wanted to, uh, you know, take me a long time or whatever. But by that, I meant um, that is part of the game, like just fabricating a world like an author would or or a script writer for for movies. Um, there's no other games that very few games that do that. I can't think of any. I'm just hedging. Um, hmm. And so, yes, it is uh, tickling the brain all the time for me. Yeah, so a full of a range of creative challenges for you, it sounds like that, yes. really. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and so how, how do you keep yourself motivated? I mean, as a GM, as the forever GM as well, I mean, I don't know. I've been that for a long, long while too. But um, I've had my fair periods of, like, you know, dipping in motivation and, um, you know, I guess some people call it burnout. Uh, how do you keep yourself going? I've had several periods of burnout. Um, the first couple of times I didn't realize what was happening, but fortunately – I didn't sell all my books and say, okay, I, you know, I'm done with this. I'm uh, ready for a new hobby. Um, it, was, it was just temporary. Uh, there's a, a couple of things uh, since I recognized that in myself that I could burn out um, from basically doing too much or beating myself up. The negative self-talk too much can cause burnout as well. Mm. Um, what I, the first thing is change, change it up. So play a different game. So whenever I burn out, say on D&D, I switch games. That's the phase I'm in right now. I'm looking at uh, where I'm running old school essentials, which is still mm -hmm. D&D, but it's not D&D 5. I'm burned out on D&D 5, I guess I should clarify. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm looking at Pathfinder 2, and I'm just going through the, the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition rules. So mm. you change things up. You see what you knew before in different ways, and it's exciting to me again. Uh, the other one is um, kind of a, I don't know, a GM axiom or a philosophy uh, that I, uh, I don't know where I got it from, but it's prepare to improvise. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what I do now or have been doing for the last while is, okay, what are the most enjoyable aspects of preparation for me? Well, I like creating encounters. That's probably my number one thing. Maps and NPCs might be, you know, uh, in there too. I like mm -hmm. creating treasure and I like kind of thinking about um, challenges and things like that. So that's what I will create. Anything I don't like to do, I will outsource. I'll try to find generators, tables, books, resources of any kind, and then and leverage those. And then uh, during the game, I've got the stuff that I've prepared, and then I've got the other stuff ready to call upon uh, when needed. And that seems to um, be successful strategy for me so far. I think you've mentioned in the past that um, you started roleplayingtips.com as a kind of, um, I guess, a sort of way of getting yourself to improve. Yes, you know, you sort of, because it's it start. I think it started, because if I remember correctly, it sort of started out where you put out some tips and then you would invite people, as you still do, to sort of, you know, send in stuff. And then you kind of compile all of that. Yeah, take us through that a little bit. How has that worked for you over the years? Yeah, sure. Well, I don't know if I'm actually better, but um, it's always, <laughs> it's an eternal goal to uh, be improving in some way. And the game has such open-endedness that there's always something that you could uh, improve if you wanted to. Mm. Um even public speaking and not saying the word. Um, so the, <laughs> the original idea I had was to create a role-playing game company with a couple of friends. We called it the art of role-playing. It was the summer of 1999. And we had 
a, a kind of a multimedia plan because the internet was st just starting to cook and um, it was pre uh, web 2.0, but it was still getting very popular. Anyways, um, that fell apart. But from that, I learned, I, I teased out some threads of the things that I did like and wanted to pursue. And I just decided to go ahead and do it. And uh, my goal was at that time in 1999, though there were online bulletin boards and modems made that screechy noise still uh, yeah. when you logged on to the internet, uh, there is still, there's only a few places online that you could uh, talk GMing and whatnot. One were all the news groups and those were constant. Some of them were just wars waging back and forth, yeah. no change from today. Uh, and others were very cool. You had some of the Greyhawk um, authors and some of the uh, TSR folks and some um, folks from many the many other RPG companies out there. But anyways, what I felt was that there was no um, resource that was helping game masters improve. People were just anec sharing anecdotes or, mm. or whatnot. And um, there was no way for GMs to kind of connect because GMing is lonely, or at least it was at that time, because there was no social media and whatnot. So mm. basically your physical contacts were your network of GMs and very few GMs had other GM friends in, in that way. And so, especially ones who wanted to talk trade. So the idea between behind role-playing tips was, okay, I would brain dump some of my uh, weird tips and tactics and things, uh, and then ask if anyone else had some, and then echo them back out. And then more and more people would uh, benefit from each other's wisdom. So it was almost like a sneaker net uh, uh, information exchange. And um, yeah, that was, that was November 1999. Uh, the first email went out to myself twice with two email addresses. And uh, my wife and uh, and my mom, but she didn't actually have an email address. So it was just a fake one. But uh, so, yeah, big, uh, big start there. And then the rest is, uh, well, as they say, the rest is whatever, 30 years ago. Hmm. Oh, good. Cool. OK, well, look, we're here to talk about prep, um, which is something that I don't know. I don't know what it is for me, but it's always been something I struggle with to consistently show up and do prep um, to either have enough or to you know as you said earlier actually that prepare to improvise thing to have enough to be ready to to go and to play but at the same time not feel constrained and i think uh, you know for me and i think for many listeners there are times when you know that you should be prepping and you're not and it, you know you're going to get to session and that can cause a lot of anxiety and stress and you're not ready to go and it got the players all waiting for you so um i guess i'm going to open a big wide question of how can we get better at prepping for our games yeah, that's that's a tricky one. So the the um, symptoms and the and the root causes of not wanting to prep are are many. So you would want to talk, I think, to an individual game master and just find out, okay, where are your roadblocks and points of friction? And then, but in general terms, um, so let's let's take us. We're uh, older, and what we have against us are several things that uh, provide uh, almost like a counter gravity uh, for wanting to do prep. The first one I think is the Dunning-Kruger effect. So the Dunning-Kruger effect, if, if you search online for that, is that um, people new think they know more than they do and experts think they know less than they do. Or, you know, the more that you learn, the more that you know you don't know or whatever the expression I just butchered it. Um, and so once we have GM'd for a while, 
then we have more of these criteria we build up in our mind to these check boxes we have to check off. Dungeons have to be realistic and the character, the players have to be engaged with uh, wicked stories and on and on. And so you have this as an expert, you know what the game is. You have all of these things that you think make up required for a great game. So then that creates this pressure, which would cause you to procrastinate. Another one is at, at our age, age here. Um, well, things aren't growing. <laughs> you know, we're getting older. The brain is slowly losing its neurons and we're just not in the same uh, kind of energetic state that we were when we were 10 years old or 20 years old. And so we can circumvent that in many ways. And that's a, that's a health and, and well-being kind of a, a, a talk. But um, the more that you GM, the more you kind of get your brain back into it. And, and if you're coming back, say, after a lapse of gaming. But um, all that to say, when, um, when we approach the thought of doing something creative, my hypothesis is that we have more um, internal resistance to that than when we were younger and had that high energy state. We were just willing to go into corners and explore things. Now, if we go into corners, we get tired <laughs> and we want to nap. <laughs> and so, um, you know, there's some resistance uh, coming from that. Another one uh, is uh, repetition. So unless you're exploring new areas, then you still, you don't get that dopamine hit. Uh, if you're doing repetitive stuff, now there's some folks that do repetitive stuff and that's their jam. So that's fine. You're not affected by this. But for other folks, um, if you're doing the same thing again, it becomes boring. It becomes, and you get cynical about it or jaded and you don't want to put the effort in. And so you, you'll, another reason you'll procrastinate. And, uh, and I think the, I mentioned earlier, the negative self-talk. I think your own expectations of what you think a good game entails grows the more that you GM, again, for the reasons, some of the reasons I've just said, and that creates this wall. And it's like, wow, I got to um, do another Olympic record uh, hurdle here for a win. And then the next session rolls around. It's like, wow, I got to do, all, you know, make it all detailed and make it cool and do all these things. So those are four examples, I think. Um, mostly targeted at, at our folks. There'd be different reasons for different kinds of people not to uh, be interested in prep. But um, I think there's a lot of mental games going on that uh, prevent us from wanting to do prep. It's not the prep itself and it's not what we have to prep. It's all an internal uh, game. Yeah, I mean, my personal experience is actually a lack of mental energy. So, you know, I'm a high school teacher by day. So I'm, you mm -hmm. know, coming from work every night and I'm exhausted and as try as I might at the moment, I've got this little strategy called Tiny Prep, where it's based on um, BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits book, actually. Excellent. But the idea of, you know, just a tiny little, I do my blog every night, and then I sit down and I try and do a few minutes of prep. But it's um, even that, sometimes it is absolutely exhausting, you know, like any kind of decision making, any kind of I'm going from there. So then you go to the weekends and the weekends get eaten by other things. Um, and yeah, it's very easy to go week by week by week without actually getting much done and feel pressure of that. Um, and I know that because you've done a, a brilliant course on GM, GM organization recently, which I I went through, Thank which you. is great. Thank you for that. Um, and there were some lovely tips in there about looking after yourself, actually, in the first sort of instance. And but I thought what was most interesting was that you have a you have a process that you kind of run yourself through. So I don't even mind taking us through that a little bit. Like, what are what's your go to kind of approach? Yeah, so actually, I, I mirror that. Uh, I'm a fan of BJ BJ Fogg's uh, productivity uh, technique. 
based on academic research on neuroscience or whatever you want to call it, how people work. And uh, he's figured out how to leverage uh, our natural tendencies to get results. And so, yeah, that is fantastic. So along the similar lines as his approach, the first thing I'll figure out is, okay, how do I structure my life so that prep is guaranteed? So to do that, you need to attach your prep time to something that you already do every day. Or if you're a calendar person, you jam it in your calendar. Uh, the second thing is, it's the, the barrier is getting started. Once you get started, chances are you're, you'll have a good time and you'll keep and you do a bunch of prep. It might be for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or two hours or whatever, but it's just getting started. And so the trick is if you can just say, okay, I commit to five minutes of prep a day or whatever, you know, 10 minutes was in the course, but it doesn't matter what it is. The trick then you're doing on yourself is just to get started because then that five minutes sometimes will turn into the 10 minutes or the one hour and you get a lot of stuff done. But you just have to trick yourself into getting up on that high diving board, looking down into the chasm and then taking that first step off. And so you can either calendar, put something in your calendar. So then it's part of that. Or you say, hey, every time I, I go for lunch, the first thing I do before I open my lunch bag is, is I'm going to create an NPC or something like that. Uh, and then uh, we already talked about preparing to improvise. So you figure out what you like to do. You also figure out um, the opposite. And then you uh, you prepare or you work on the stuff that you find the most fun first. So if your brain knows it's going to get a reward, then it, it's going to put up less resistance for you. So, for example, I like drawing maps. Uh, I don't draw them very well. Um, and I just doodle on my iPad. So to start with prep, I will do a map for a five-room dungeon, another adventure site that I need to work on. Having that now is a um, is a structure, is an inventory. It's like fill in the blanks. So what I've done is turn something that was unknown blank paper uh, where you get writer's block and all the fear stuff. Uh, you now, next time I prep, I will have this five-room dungeon map that I can start filling things out. It's almost like I've created a starter for myself for the next time. Mm -hmm. When I create an NPC, I don't create it with all of these dependencies and, and purposes. I just create an NPC that I think would be fun. And then I later on, I'll find a way to use that NPC, either improvised, like it'll just be a bag of Lego that I draw from, or it'll be an NPC I, I attach in prep to something else, like a location or a plot thread and whatnot. Uh, and then just a couple more of the steps, uh, create a source of truth. So for me, uh, it's frustrating when I can't find something when I'm looking for it. And then uh, I will try, I will waste time looking for it, or I'll just always feel this frustration that I'm working with something and I know there's something else out there that could be helpful. So um, this is also in the game. If you have to pause the game to look for something, and it could be on a napkin or a piece of paper or in this journal or on my phone or on my iPad or on my computer, like I'm lost, that's terrible. So the technique is to put everything into one pile. I call that your source of truth. And so it's most often digital, but it could also be index cards or GM binders or a, a mile high stack of post-it notes, what have you. Um, but if you create your source of truth, you'll always have things at your fingertips. At least you know the general area to look in. You know it with confidence that it's going to be there. And then you can eventually suss it out. And then it's the same with books and physical materials. If you can just organize your physical stuff so you know where to find things in, in general, you can cut your, your searches down uh, quite a bit. And then... The final one um, is like, what what information do you need to GM? It's actually very little. You don't need uh, to create long histories and things, uh, details, so that 
you can. It can be inspiring and give you a sense of, like it can ground you and give you this greater context you can draw from, but you really don't need it. So one of my techniques is three line NPCs. Three pieces of information is all you need to GM on the fly, uh, a great NPC in my opinion. And um, and so if you can condense your, your um, prep into these little ta- uh, hacks and techniques and methods, the, like the five room dungeon, other things, um, then you know what to do. If you know you need an NPC, but you have no method for doing it, then that's, again, when resistance comes. And the next time you won't even come to that point, you'll just say, no, I have this feeling I don't want to prep today. Uh, not realizing it's because you didn't know what to do yesterday. And so, you know, the, the feedback mm-hmm. loop there. So those are a few of the, the things that you can do. But uh, start with every prep session with a small period of time with something that you really like doing, like creating a magic sword or something. Um or a spaceship, then that's that's probably the biggest impact that's had on my just getting the prep done. Mm, yeah, great, thank you. And it sounds like you know picking something you enjoy and then building off of that, and um, you know it's kind of the trick, I guess. Uh, yes. For me, one of the hacks I've got is I've got uh, my daily game prep uh, table, which you can't really see uh, here. But no, no, bring it closer. I've got a one d six table daily game prep. Uh, oh no, it's not going to work, is it? Um, basically, I roll one d six, and on a one, it's write a clue. On a two, it's add a room to a dungeon map. On a three, it's add something to an NPC profile. On a four, it's add something to an item design. On a five, write down a consequence from last session. And then a six is add a person, place, or thing uh-huh. to the world. Um, I love and, that. Yeah. And I just, it, what I found is it's to take away the decision. You know, like when you have yeah. to um, uh, sit down to prep and you don't have energy. Um, sorry, my wife's phone. So when you um, have to sit down to prep and you just don't have the energy, like to make a decision about what to do is often too hard for me. Yes. Um, so I found like I can roll 1d6. You know, I'll do that and then, you know, and, and I'll do that thing. Um, and I, yeah, that's been a, a kind of an easy way in, I suppose. And some of the things that I enjoy doing that kind of really help with that. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, it's also a great way to ambush your brain. So mm. let's say uh, instead of game prep, it was exercise. Well, you don't want to go to the gym today. But if you had a random table and your brain doesn't know what physical torture it's going to get today, it's going to put <laughs> up far less resistance and emotional barriers for you to just go out and start doing the thing. So that's a really good technique. I like that. Uh, it mirrors something I called five minute GM quests, um, which are things you can do in five minutes to improve your campaign. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, it's, uh, again, you can just choose which one you want depending on your mood. And in some, if you can just enhance your campaign in some way, that's always better than watching TV. Yeah, that's cool. And in a little while, I'd like to talk to you about campaign logger and, and relation yeah, sure. to that as well, because, um, I think there's a connection there. Um, well, something I'm discovering anyway. But before we go there, I wanted to ask you about the five-room dungeon. So where on earth did that idea come from? I have no idea where the initial um, seed came from. But, and this was in 2002, 2003. So memory is not as sharp as it used to be, as we were talking about earlier. So the um, I needed, what we just talked about in prep, actually, I needed a mechanism so that I could prepare an adventure for next session reliably without fighting myself on how to do it. So around that time, 2002, 2003, the D20 uh, world was um, was full of stuff thanks to the OGL and this and that. And so there's many GM uh, advice things and the internet, of course, had taken off. Blogging had just started. And so there are many adventure prep uh, uh, techniques. So it was almost like analysis paralysis. And so I just, I said to myself, I just needed 
a consistent way, at least to get the bare facts down. At the same time, because I was interested in this topic, I was um, re uh, visiting Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces. Um, I had encountered his um, his other books. I don't know what you would call it. Uh, I, I don't come by this professionally. Is it anthropology? Anyways, he studied mm -hmm. cultures, uh, current and past, and um, especially indigenous cultures, and then realized that there's common threads to their storytelling. And, and most of these uh, cultures, storytelling was their method of information transfer between the generations and between um, you know, neighboring tribes and things like that. So he realized there's common threads and that these threads kind of match um, how we think and operate in life. So story, uh, basically, our brains are not designed to memorize facts. If I gave you 10 numbers in a sequence and then asked you 20 minutes from now, you would remember like a couple of them, uh, three or four. But if I told you a story, you could recount most of that story half an hour later. And a great example of it is jokes. I mean, some people are, are terrible at that, but for most of us, we remember a story. So Joseph Campbell had latched on to that. This is how our brains work. And this is the common thread of stories. And so then he distilled that in Hero of Thousand Faces to what he called the hero's journey. I don't, actually don't think the hero's journey is his language, but, um, and it is, uh, we go through uh, a number of steps on and all the epics that like Gilgamesh and all that, we go through a number of steps. The reason why those stories echo so well or resonate is because they, they are our daily experience. We start off in a normal world and then something happens and so on. Anyways, I took that and I thought, okay, this is a perfect model proven throughout the history of humanity. If I copy it, guaranteed, I'm likely I'm going to get a, a good story. And then um, I also know that uh, games are an interactive medium. And so a storytelling medium traditionally is an audience. So the person, the storyteller has all the control. But as game masters, we only control what we have up until a point it lands on the table, and then the players can play with it and change things and do and make decisions and have choices. So, um, so I realized that some of the steps were pure narrator control kind of things and weren't exactly appropriate to a game medium. So eventually, after a few iterations, uh, I distilled it down to these steps, these five steps. So the five steps are kind of a condensed version of uh, the Hero of a Thousand Faces uh, theory of Joseph Campbell. And then I uh, showed it to a friend at work. He said, this is really great. So I decided to put it into the newsletter after I'd used it uh, successfully for a few uh, game session preparation uh, times. And then, um, yeah, and then it, it, it took off uh, from there. It was kind of a soft, it didn't land too well. In other words, I got some feedback. This is great. But I, I don't know what happened, but in later years, it became more, it became viral. Somehow it became viral. And then people said, oh, yeah, this works for me, too. And so then it kind of stuck. And so it's stuck around since then. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where good ideas stick, don't they, really? And, um, yes. you know, it takes a while. I think, you know, I think it's one of the things that we don't often realize in the hobby, but like good ideas as they get transmitted around, get passed around. Um, I mean, I've, I was really gratified to, to note the Alexandrian who, um, you know, Justin Alexander, is a, I'm a great fan of his work. Yes. Um, him talking about like, the five room dungeon some years after I'd first come across it, but talking about how it was great, especially for a sort of new or aspiring gem give you a structure to get going with your, your yes. play and everything else and i think it's always nice to see these ideas like you said about 2005 or something i don't know i've seen that again around about 2015 or something it was it's really gratifying just just for the benefit of your listeners um i regret naming it that way and then there's some <laughs> there's some artificial constraints that i see online in online conversations around it so mm. um 
just to help GMs maybe think of it in a more positive light or in a better way, um, it's not about dungeons. It's actually, I should have named it Five Room Adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be five rooms. It's the core story moments in your in a, in a well-structured uh, story. Mm-hmm. So you could have 100 encounters, seven encounters. You could even have three encounters. If you hit those five, maybe using Robin Law's language, those five story beats, then you have guaranteed a structure, a proven structure for good stories. So uh, for any anybody who wants to try it out, you don't have to stick with five and it doesn't have to be about dungeons. It's any kind of uh, adventure or story uh, structure that you mm. want to um, use and change and manipulate for your game. I guess for the purposes of our listeners as well, and assuming they probably don't know necessarily, uh, do you want to like outline what those five are? Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So uh, the first room and, and room I use just as a metaphor, it's an encounter. Mm. First encounter uh, is or situation. So that's where it gets tricky. RPGs are so open-ended, we can make them what we want. You could have like six encounters or five encounters that are just that first room, uh, which um, I think it was Sean Shannon, I think, one of my readers, had suggested fractal five-room dungeons. So you have five-room dungeons within five-room dungeons, and then those could go infinitely. All right. The first room is entrance or guardian. And the it's both the normal world that uh, Joseph Campbell has in his uh, mythology, as well as the call to action. Um, in gaming, it, it explains um, how the how the PCs are hooked into the adventure. Mm-hmm. It explains why the, the dungeon wasn't looted before or why someone else hasn't already solved the problem. So the Guardian, and the Guardian could be a monster, but it could also be a bad law or some kind of cultural thing or a body of water. It doesn't matter what it is, an obstacle. Anyways, room one is about entrance and guardian and getting uh, players committed to the adventure. Room two is puzzle or role-playing. And in Joseph Campbell's uh, uh, methodology, he has what he calls the guide or the mentor. And this person will take the hero who is probably unwitting and unwilling. And in in mythologies, like the victim of the gods, like the Coke bottle dropping on your head. Um, And so... You um you want to introduce and, and tell the, the the hero the plan. You you have to do this, you know, go get the golden fleece or whatever it is that you're up to. And so if the players don't know that, then room two is all about kind of onboarding them into the rest of the adventure. Um it's things like drop some clues, uh, do some foreshadowing, or perhaps give them an early tool that will unlock uh, room three and four, whatever uh your choice is there. And then um, to switch things up, it doesn't always have to be role-playing. I decided to add puzzles in there, which isn't part of uh, Campbell's thing, but is an integral part of uh, of our, our game. So um, you could turn it into a role-playing puzzle or just have a puzzle or just have some NPCs or an, an NPC. And then also, um, Room 2 kind of came later in the process for me. I realized after going through that, okay, I've got a lot of combat and conflict in here, but we also want role playing and puzzle solving in the game. How could that fit into this uh, method? So that's where room two came in. And then room three is a uh, trick or setback. And so every uh, hero in, in mythological stories encounter a barrier and then they, they fail. This is basically uh, they have some kind of um, problem and then they have to rethink reality, which is what unlocks them to achieving the, the end result. And I can't remember right now, what Joseph Campbell calls that, but it's a phase in, in his uh, in his map of the adventure uh, of the storytelling process. And so and for us G- game masters, you can put in um, a, a conflict like a combat 
or you could put in traps and hazards. That's generally uh, what you would put into that one. But strategically, it's a resource depletion encounter. We want drama to be uh, at its height when they finally confront the stage boss or the villain or with the object of the dungeon. We want that to be, and to get that drama highest, you want the players to feel the least confident. So if they know that they're already at half hit, half hit points and their eighth level spells have all been burnt and other things, when they finally confront the stage boss, then um, that's peak drama. So to set that up, you can use, you can optionally use encounter three, trick setback to, re to deplete their resources. And then number four is your primary conflict, the final battle, the stage boss battle. And whatever that is, that is um, perhaps it is winning the election if you're run running that kind of an adventure, uh, or it is a, a pure combat, or it could be um, popularity contest, or uh, just uh, being able to divert the comet from striking the earth. So four is the PCs confront the ultimate barrier goal villain. And then five is aftermath. Uh, which I call twist and revelation. The twist part is um, five room dungeons can get repetitive if you just cycle through them like a hamster. So the twist is a way to to flavor your adventure to keep players on their toes. They're not expecting things. This is why I say don't stick to five rooms all the time. The the pattern matchers in your in your uh, group will quickly pick up on that in metagame. Um, so you have a twist to uh, hook the story and make a, a new flavor of the of the story. And then uh, Revelation is about uh, discovering something new. So that's the discovery pillar that some RPGs have. And so that is seeing the world in a new light. Uh, in Joseph Campbell's, that's returning to the world of normal, but you've you've transformed. So therefore, everything that you see is different and the world is a different and, and, and um, I, would, I was going to say better place, but sometimes they're tragedies. So, um, but for our GMing, our Revelation is actually uh, a hook to the next adventure. To keep the infinite game going at least that's how i use room five so room fun uh, room one is entrance and, and guardian room two is puzzle or uh, role play room three is trick or setback room four is your primary conflict and outcome and then room five is twist and revelation yeah thanks for that's great it's um oh it's one of those really useful tools to sort of know about so it's good to talk it through so Roleplay Rescue is about like getting people, encouraging people to come back to the role-playing hobby, especially if they've had that time away. So do you have any tips for the person who's trying to do that or is thinking about doing that? Any advice? Well, first of all, thank you. So the more people that play our hobby, the, ha the better the world is. Um, and my philosophy, um, basically games make people uh, better. They de-stress people. Uh, our particular game is social, so we're actually connecting with people and we're not just stuck in front of a doing our, our solo activities and stuff. And and then, um, you know, our game makes us smarter or keeps the brain cells going at least. And so I feel that games make, so that's good. And so thank you for bringing more people back to our hobby uh, and, and getting them excited so that um, we have more, more awesome game masters. And so if you're coming back from the hobby, I think the, the marketing or the exposure in part due to the internet of all the options you have can overwhelm people quickly. Whereas back in the day, you go to the game store, there's only one game on the shelf. If if you're lucky that your hobby store uh, actually supplied uh, RPGs. So you would normally just find D&D. Um, uh, &D. Although I actually found uh, Rollmaster and bought uh, a couple of supplements there, not realizing it was different from D&D. &D. Like I'm not the brightest brick in the shed. And so um, 
I, I fused Rollmaster with D and D for a few years and it was, yeah, it was a Frankenstein no one wants to hear about. So, um, <laughs> I would, uh, gravitate towards, um, a simple game. If you can, something like old school essentials is perfect for that. That's the red book basically republished with a uh, better and, and good layout for referencing and things like that. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to remember who Old School Essentials has done. Uh, it's just on the tip of my tongue. Is it Gavin Norman? Yeah. Anyways, I apologize if that's incorrect. That's correct. Okay. Uh, so Old School Essentials is great. Um, Pathfinder is also uh, a wonderful game. And so um, you, you, you're you going to have a lot of options. So I, I recommend or Call of Cthulhu. Uh, any of the editions is fun as well. So uh, yeah, pick a game because you'll be uh, have so many options. You'll have analysis uh, paralysis. Uh, the next one is I think do a little bit of prep. So don't go in cold or don't go in trying to run a, a I think a complicated published uh, adventure. Do a little bit of creation yourself because it'll get the memories back. It'll start getting those old neurons back to the top of the pile. However that works, and. Um, it will remind you of your GMing skills. So it's going to be like riding a bike again is the metaphor cliche. So it is an easy way to hop on again. If you just passively read the rules and passively um, read an adventure, I don't think that is um, as good as actually putting a pencil to paper, drawing a map or creating an NPC or enhancing something. Speaking mm -hmm. of adventures, don't try to avoid the 256 page um hardcover uh, expensive adventures because they generally um, force a narrative that then you're always at the game table trying to get the players on path and that's so much mental uh, load on you. Instead, try to pick a smaller, uh, maybe an OSR, old school. What does OSR stand for? I've lost the plot there. Is it old school renaissance, old school revival? I think for me, it's old school renaissance, but that's what it was okay. back in, was it 2008 or something when it all sort of came to the fore but yeah oh, i mean yeah. I've, I've lost the plot too <laughs> so anyways osr is about um people that are playing the older games because that's mm. what they're familiar with that's what they like um and so they have a bunch of adventures and if you if you're uh if you gm back in the 80s or early 90s you probably remember that adventures were 32 pages and they had the map as a as a cardboard cover that you that would separate and then you had the internal module and then the counters were a paragraph long so what you can do is if you if you open an adventure and look at later on in the book where your major encounters are, your room fours are, if you see like a two-column description of the encounter, that's probably not the best place to start. Like all of that logic that you have to remember, why does it take a full page to describe the, the encounter? Better to arm the game master with some ideas and then uh, go with the imagination route, in my opinion. So avoid the long adventures. See if you can either homebrew an adventure or find some. And you can find some great adventures for free online. I don't know if you have any favorite resources, um, but if you go to drivethroughrpg.com, uh, there's a free filter in search and a, an adventures filter by game system in search. And you can pick up some ones with uh, ratings to give you some general guidelines there. Um, what else? I don't know. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. That was pretty weak. Two tips. Don't be complicated is what it boils down to. But what about you? Uh, as you run the podcast, you've probably got a couple of favorite tips. Um, what would you tell me if I was coming back to the hobby? I'd say pick a game, which is what you said. Okay. And I'd say start playing the game. 
Um, Because I think that there's, like you said about sitting and reading the books, I do think that that is, that leads us into sort of a paralysis. I mean, it's the biggest barrier I have. I have thousands of books and you sit and read them. um, That's fine. It could be very entertaining. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some people involved in the hobby who basically buy the big books and read them, but never play them. And I'm of the view that, you know, it's probably better to start playing. So yeah, I quite like your tip about like, go and make something up even if it was i mean for me it would be go and monkey about run a combat for yourself you know and (laughs) and test out the game um you know come up with a yeah you could do a quick dungeon map for something like osc and uh, maybe stock it and then run your mates through it um i always like the um I think it's the very first episode oh god what's his name Uh, there's a youtuber um hugely well known now and it's gone out of my head it's, his first episode was like we are you and me are going to play D- this dnd fifth edition but it's you and me and your friends are going to play D tonight you're going to run, run an adventure and he takes people through how to put together a very quick dungeon with goblins and oh, then yeah. sort of get playing right um and i think it was one of the most powerful things at a time when you know when it was done um i think about 2018 or something um i think one of the most powerful things is that you know we're going to sit down we're going to design a dungeon and you're going to run it for your mates and, and I think that's a really powerful message. You know, to, awesome. To if you have a link to that, I would love to to see that video. It might have been Matt Corville or the that's Greek. Matt Corville. That's it. Matt? Thank you. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, you know, his especially his early stuff, just really great. Yeah. Oh, and I think Game Masters will be surprised at how uh, public the game has become, the hobby has become and publicly mm-hmm. accepted. So before you wouldn't mention it in a job interview and you wouldn't put it on your <laughs> resume. But now it's just mainstream. It, be, it became mainstream roughly starting around 2015 through a variety of mechanisms. And so I think Game Masters returning to the hobby will be surprised at how many players are available within the the normal people around uh, mm-hmm. in their circles and two and three degrees of separation. So, um, But the, the bad si- side of that or a possible trap is that we don't they, those folks don't have any um, uh, foreknowledge and so they don't know the tropes and this and that and so maybe their experience is mostly video games and so you might have players coming to the table with different expectations of what a tabletop rpg is maybe set up by um some uh some of the tv shows that i'm doing air quotes uh of televised games on youtube for example would set up some certain expectations so that would be another tip is just to have a level set with your with your group and maybe just having it, here's how the game runs. If you've never played before, it's going to be a bit slow. It's ace, We're going to take turns and do things, roll dice. Um, it's not a video game. And mm. and so that could be a trap for new returning game masters to be aware of. Hey, thank you, John. It's great. Uh, I did say I wanted to talk a little bit about Campaign Logger with you. And I'm mm. conscious of time, but I just think it's just a great conversation. Um, so I, I understand that's a tool that you developed, well, you got Jochen and you developing together. Um, tell us a little bit about it, because I'm starting to pingle with it, and it looks intriguing. Sure. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, you're letting me shill have my product here. So for the record, uh, Jochen did all the programming. Uh, I am not a coder, and so he is the genius behind it. Uh, all I did was uh, was interfere. And so um, in 2015, I had uh, my favorite application for running games and, and storing my information and having them available at game sessions and for prep was called MyInfo. And I think MyInfo just released a new version this year as well. I still recommend it. It's a standalone app, single-time purchase. Um, but the problem, so it, it was not the easiest to use in terms of like linking. Let me take a step back. What I wanted from a tool and what I kept looking for 
in Evernote, Google Docs, Office 365, which didn't exist then, so it was just Office, and in um, in, in any a whole bunch of applications in 2015, was I don't type the fastest, but I don't want the application to slow me down when connecting ideas. Mm-hmm. Anytime I tried to link, so this NPC is in this five-room dungeon, so now I need to link the five-room dungeon entry or page or note or what have you with this NPC thing. And that means right-clicking, get a link, going back to the other thing, pasting the link in, or whatever the application's flow is. And it was very frustrating. So I would just end up not linking anything and then just going to do a link-only kind of a prep thing is boring as heck. So what I wanted was the ability to connect my ideas at the speed of thought or technically the speed of my two fingers that I type with. <laughs> and um, that's that's where we came up with the idea of auto-tagging. So in social media, if you put an at sign in front of somebody's name, that instantly links that person. You can click on that. You can open up their profile or however that platform works. So you can literally link at the speed that you're entering the stuff in. All you add is that one little symbol. So that's how our auto tagging works. So if you have an NPC, you would add an at sign. If you have a plot, you would add an asterisk. And you can now connect things. And then we add in enhancements to make it even faster. So we have autocomplete. So as soon as you start typing an NPC's name, all similar NPC names come up and you can just select the one from the list and you can move on with eliminating spelling mistakes. So everything is, that's another problem I had when cross-linking between things. I would have duplication issues due to my weird brain. And so that that's anyways, the core story around campaign logger. How can I not only enter information, but reference information in a way that my brain works. And my brain only remembers half the stuff at any given time. So I will have like a a memory hook. And if I can just type that, start typing that into something and it's gonna come up with a thing that I want, then that's the tool that I wanted. And so that's how Campaign Logger also works. So there's numerous search filter and and, uh, uh, browsing and exploration functions. So if you remember, for example, not the name of the NPC, but that they were the swordsmith. You could just type in Smith and then up comes, you know, all of the entries that contain the word Smith. Or if you fiddle with the search, you can just come up with anything in the in the name that's Smith or in their role or whatever. So um, the system is sort of intelligent in the background. It's a really poor person's neural network. I don't know what. Um, anyways, when we put out a beta and we use the tool ourselves in our campaigns uh, still to say, uh, it worked that the the hypothesis was, yep, this auto linking thing is exactly what I, the way that I personally want to prep games. Jokin is all on board. He said, yep, this is exactly what I was looking for too. And then yeah, it's been echoed by other game masters. It's not a tool for everyone, um, but for folks that have um, a lot of information or that kind of memory thing, I don't know what the thing is exactly, but if I could surround it with a couple of ideas, I could find it quick. Um, you can't do that as easily as say in a Word doc or in mm. Evernote or what have you. So that's what Campaign Logger is. It's a web-based application, and um, yeah, and it's it's five bucks a month. Uh, if anyone is interested in in purchasing it uh, to for full disclosure, but there's also an unlimited time free trial, so that you can just use it permanently within the the constraints of the free trial. It doesn't time out uh, or nerf nerf you hard in in ways. So. Yeah, what I like about it is that it encourages short and sweet typing. Because you've got the two sort of types of entry, haven't you? You've got log and you've got like pages. And the pages, yeah. you know, are like, I guess you could just like 
unload a load of information uh, be a yes. bit like a gazetteer page or something like that i suppose yeah, yeah exactly um so i found that's useful for sort of extensive backgroundy bits or um, even stat blocks and things like that you can kind of log all that information as a page but actually most time what i've discovered is the power of the log where you know i'm typing in what's happening in this scene uh maybe or just what's going on here and log it and then the next bit comes along and attack that and because like you said with the tagging it all gets connected so as you move through um adding your notes everything kind of gets connected together i guess it doesn't take much to go and curate some of that as well um so yeah i find it quite interesting i'm personally been using it uh, recently with um in session i've been doing a little bit of solo play and just in session separating the woolsey notes from my narrative notes for example yes, love it um and then you can just pull all the narrative stuff out you know or whatever yeah. uh in in pages so actually let me take a step back i'm still mm-hmm. struggling to, to uh, find a way to effectively communicate the two kind of entities within campaign logger there's many entities but the mm-hmm. ones that you brought up were pages and logs the, mm-hmm. the best way that i found so far and i don't think it's hit the mark yet is your pages are like a book so just look in the table of contents mm-hmm. in a in an rpg book you've got People, places, things, and events at minimum in, in a, like a world book or an adventure or whatnot. So those are pages. Pages are your, your book. And then logs are like post-it notes that you would put on those pages with notes to yourself, with call-outs. And then logs can also be used like for taking rapid session notes and other things. So, mm. um, And then in pages, I don't know if you've discovered this yet, but if you link to a page, you can hover over that link and it will actually come up with a like a picture in picture of that page. Mm-hmm. And so I've been using that to put, um, say, old school essentials rules. So all I need to do then is create a, just a, a simple list of links and I can hover over them at any given time to instantly have rules reference, which is faster than looking it up or even faster than doing a search. Mm-hmm. Um, so play with that tool. Um, and then I wanted to ask you, as you're describing it, if if you had um, like, what is one thing that you would add or improve about Campaign Logger now, now that you've been using it again? Is there anything that comes to mind uh, for improvement? I don't know, really. I think for uh, me, sorry, stuck honestly, in. yeah, I really don't know. I mean, I, you know, I just think that uh, the main thing, the main tip was, I think you suggested uh, somewhere in all of your stuff, that idea of kind of going shorter with your entries. And I think yes. that... I've found there's real, especially with the logs, there's real power for that. And what I liked was I can have multiple logs as well. So I've got a campaign at the moment set up and I've got my little solo like log, but there's some potential of getting a group together. So I've set up a second log, but of course now I've got all the campaign, because it's the same world, right? So I've got all the campaign notes for that world are in the same place and i've got two logs that are separate and distinct and uh, but they're all cross-referencing um and i I guess that the biggest tool for me at the moment has also been like when you come back to prep is by you know when you create and maybe you mention npc or whatever and then you you put them into a campaign logger and you get the that creates a page for them but doesn't quite create the page until you're ready to open it and link it what i started to find is another daily game prep thing can be literally to go on campaign logger look at all the tags that haven't had something done pick something and write um and that's a really powerful tool as well especially if you like like pick it up on your three line npc um approach you know that's actually just like quickly describe who's the npc what's the hook for them and what they're all about and put those notes in and, and then you're off and I found actually in session that's about all you need, isn't it? Really, and, and until you, unless you're really going to get into a combat scene with an NPC, and then you might want to think about you know statting yes. stuff. But Friendship. actually, most of the time we're interacting and role play, you know, within the game. Yes. 
we don't need much more than that sort of those those kind of hits and it's it's interesting to go and dig out old npcs and then recycle them as well yes yeah i love that yeah good uh yeah that's a that is a key thing um and not many people use that structure where you have a shared world and with many logs or campaigns pointing at it which means you only need to put add something to your world once instead of having the the duplication and then out of sync uh problem that if you have the world in multiple places you have to update it like if you add a new um, culture of people or something like that. And then um, I've tried other solutions that were RPG oriented, but they needed, they were very dead database oriented. Yeah. Like they had fields and you had to figure out which screen had the field for you to put the government style of a kingdom or something like that, for example. And we felt really confined and constrained by that, and especially in games. You had to click seven times just to find mm -hmm. something. So we wanted something that had, that was like a broad surface. You could just find anything very quickly and it was mm. free form. You weren't, if you're anyways, I, I've come up, I've thought of something you could add actually. Okay. I great. think, yeah. I think it would be great to have some stock um, templates for your basics, like your, your three line NPC and that sort of stuff to actually like almost be able to sort of click and drop them in. Um, yeah. Because I've set those up in my, I've set those up in my log, you know, like I've got the template for the NPC, and I can go and kind of copy and paste that text. Um, but I don't know if it would be worth actually having a thing where you could just literally sort of click and or drag in, boop, I've got a new NPC. Here we go. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's possible, but that would be really great because, and of course, being able to customize those, I suppose. But I just think that there's real value in having templates. Um, that you can kind of then drop stuff into. I think you've you've mentioned this before in your um, prep and organization thing as well. It's like if you've got the boring bit is the template. So once I've got a template, my brain can fill that in quite happily. Um, yes. And that takes away some of the thinking. I don't have to think about what do I have to write about an NBC? Oh, yeah, I need to name them and describe them. And here we go. And that works, doesn't it? <clears throat> yeah, that's awesome. Um, I've got that uh, beta testing uh, solution right now. And then we have in our 2023 roadmap a, um, and a, a really exciting potential solution. I won't uh, say more uh, and promise something that Jochen um, is still are researching. Um, but uh, Campaign Logger also comes with a free access to another tool called the Generator Service, which is entirely unimaginably named. And um, you can create your own custom generators. Plus, we have a bunch of generators that you can just use out of the box with it and import and change. And so what I'm using, uh, doing is the generator service offers these generators in the sidebar of campaign loggers. So if you need a name or an NPC or a plot hook or five room dungeon or what have you, you just generate it and then it puts it into your, your notes for you. Well, I'm turning that into a template delivery system. Right. So I've created a couple of templates. So when that comes out, uh, I'll have a tutorial video and I'll throw it out there. That might be an approach that uh, gels with you. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would love to hear your feedback on it. Should you uh, try it? But anyways, I'm thinking that'll be a January uh, release for my approach of using generator service mm. to uh, deliver templates like that. Right. Yeah. Thank you for the feedback. No worries. I'm okay. So I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to ask the big question, which is the, what do you wish people would ask you when you're an interview? They never <laughs> ask you. <laughs> um, oh, I don't, maybe, um, how about the opposite? Maybe don't ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No. Um, I think, I think we, we should always revisit um, why we love the game. Uh, you get beat up in real life. Like you mentioned a great uh, thing uh, as to why prep is harder. We, we'll, uh, when we had unlimited time in school, 
we have day jobs and families and uh, responsibilities and things, and that all uh, saps our energy. Um, if we constantly remind ourselves, feel gratitude of to what the game, why we play the game, why we enjoy the game, um, I think then the question would be, hey, John, why do you like RPGs so much and GMing so much? And we covered that, so I won't kill you with uh, the redundancy that we talked about earlier, but um, that's a great question. And I think everybody, especially if you're starting to feel burnout, like, why do I like this game? What are my core um, points of enjoyment? And then how can I get more of that again and just remind yourself? I think that might be a good question uh, to always ask me and yourself. Great. Thank you, John. Well, look, it's been great having you on. Um, I'm just going to ask a really quickie. Um, through all the years of role-playing tips, okay, what's been the most memorable tip? <laughs> so I have a weird brain. Um, I won't answer your question if you're if you're worried about that. Um, I have a weird brain where I like lists. Mm-hmm. And um, when I prep now, for example, you hit on the on a really killer technique with campaign logger. I create a, a session prep list. I just do a brain dump of all the things that I want, and I almost write it in in uh, quasi prose fashion. And I don't care about the quality because I'm going to destroy it, delete it afterwards. But it's just a brain dump of how I think the session would go if it was the perfect session. Mm-hmm. They go here, they do this, they find this, they meet this person, they had counter this puzzle or whatever. Anyways, I'm tagging, instantly tagging all those things as I go so that I can go into campaign logger and you can turn on and off um, notes that have content. Basically, you've just created the idea, but you don't have any filler for it. And then I have all, an inventory of all the things that I've thought of that need more detail. And those are my future session preparation requirements, exactly the way that you use it. Yeah. So being a list maker, I've never found it an easy task to figure out the top X of anything. So when people ask me about my favorite book or my favorite mm-hmm. movie or my favorite RPG, I get deer in headlights. Um, so I, I can't honestly think of my favorite tip. I can't even think of any tips now that I'm trying to think of my favorite <laughs> tip. Um Maybe the making the list is your tip. Yeah, maybe. That's it. Um, one thing that I refreshed recently um, was uh, Hannah Lipsky's, um, I hope I got her last name right, is uh, Spiral World Building Technique, mm-hmm. uh, which she submitted as a guest uh, article in Role Playing Tips in the 2000s. And that's basically you start small and then in spiral like fashion, you keep iterating and building out and building out and building out rather than a top-down thing that could be rejected at the game table and you've lost all that time, or you design yourself into a corner. So I think if you can uh, Google spiral world building, I think more people have uh, commented on that technique as well. That's a that's a really nice tip. Bottom-up world uh, world building, I think, is a, it's also known as. But the tip is a spiral world building. Brilliant stuff. Well, thanks, John. It's been great to talk to you. Um, Thank you. Thanks very much for coming on to the show, and um, I wish you well. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, thanks. A big thank you once again to John from roleplayingtips.com for coming and sharing his experience. I'll stick links to Roleplaying Tips and Campaign Logger in the show notes. Please do go and check them out. And John also has a Patreon, so I'll put a link in for that as well. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. Call in via speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue and leave a message up to 90 seconds. Thanks once again to all the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. And thank you also to John from Tale of the Manticore for the Roleplay Rescue theme music. Most of all, thank you to you for showing up and listening. I hope you found it useful. 
My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again next time. Game on. <laughs>